Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How's everyone today? Thank you for that shush, I appreciate it. How's everyone doing? All right. Everyone good? All right. So, uh, terribly. So if you haven't noticed, I am not Ellen Datlow. I know, I know. Um, neither, is, neither is Dave Rivera, but we're going to do our best to, uh, to uh, fill in the gap while she's not here. Dave Rivera is, uh, he writes as Mercurio de Rivera, uh, is, is subbing for Ellen tonight. Ellen is, is per- Well, tonight I'm, I'm going to be Ellen and you're going to be me, right? Right? That's right. Um, so this is your first time here. This is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. It's a uh, speculative fiction series held on the third Wednesday of every month. And uh, we've been going strong for about 16 years, maybe more. And uh, it's always been free. The only thing we ask is that you buy a drink, whether it's hard or soft. Go to the bar, buy a drink, tip your bartenders. They, there's never a cover charge. All we ask is that you support the bar because the bar supports us. So please do that if you haven't done that already. Thank you. Um, so I just before we, we get on with our first readers tonight, who, uh, who I'm really excited about, I had a chance to really uh, talk to them uh, a little bit before the reading tonight. And uh, they're, they're just like, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I, I think I'm, I'm excited, and, and I hope you, you guys will, once you hear them read, and, and their energy, I think it's going to be really good. But uh, before we get there, I just want to say, uh, mention the, the readers upcoming for the next few months. April 20th, we have Elizabeth Bear in Scott Lynch. Woo! May 18th, Ellen Clages and Victor Laval. Yeah. Yeah. June 15th, Mark Laidlaw and Libby Llewellyn. Wow. July 20th, David Levine and Helen Marshall. Yeah. Come on, a little bit more cheers. August 17th, Leanna Renee Heber, and uh, it's, I can't tell you, no, because we have someone, but they haven't confirmed, so I won't say it. And you, you guys, then you're going to email, you're going to email this person and be like, I heard you're going to read in KGB, you're like, wait, I didn't confirm. I don't want to do that. Um, September 21st, September, wow, September 21st, thank you, Laird Barron and Alyssa Wong. October nineteenth, Jack Ketchum and Caitlin R. Kiernan, etc. So we got a lot. We got a lot of really nice readers for you, for everyone. Um, Word Bookstore told us they were coming. I e- I emailed them tonight and they said we're we're coming, but uh, they're not here. So they told us they were going to have the author's books. Uh, hopefully they'll show up. I hope they do. If they do, um, at the break go back. We usually have them set up by the door. Buy a book, bring it up to the author. Have them sign it, and uh, and yeah, like you know, I would really stink if they're not here. But hopefully they'll come. So um, they'll come. I have I have faith. Uh, and our first. Yes, as as Chris informed me, as as taking the, the surrogate of Ellen tonight, interjecting. Uh, if the authors will inform us that if, if the bookseller doesn't come tonight where we can buy uh, their books. Our first reader tonight is Rio Ewers. Rio is the British Fantasy Award-nominated author of End Times in Point Hollow. His short fiction has been published in many notable anthologies, and his novel, Westlake Soul, was nominated for Canada's prestigious Sunburst Award. His latest novel, To the Flame, will be released by Macmillan Thomas Dunn Books in early 2017. Here's Rio Ewers. Woo! 
Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, it's actually my second time at this bar. Uh, first time was about, I'm going to say, seven or eight years ago. Came here, it was a, uh, I think it was a Shirley Jackson, uh, like, fundraiser or something. Nick's nodding. He's like, yep, I remember that. And I sat there at the bar and I watched uh, some really wonderful authors read from Shirley Jackson's uh, wonderful stories, The Lottery and uh, The Haunting of Hill House. And Peter Straub was among them, a huge hero of mine. And uh, I just remember looking at him thinking, one day I'm going to be standing up there and I'm going to be reading too. So uh, this is a really, really good moment for me. And, you know, thanks. Thanks to, uh, to Matt and to, to Ellen, of course, for, for setting this up. And, you know, I've, got, um, I've still got many dreams, but this, I can check this one off the list. So that's great. I'm going to read a couple things tonight. Uh, first thing I'm going to read from is from my latest novel from Cheesing Publications. Uh, it's called um, Point Hollow. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a horror book. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty graphic in places. Uh, it's actually about, um, it's about a town in upstate New York with uh, a mountain that overlooks it. The mountain's haunted and the, and the town is cursed. And uh, the, the main protagonist is a guy called Oliver Ray who's being made to do things he doesn't want to do. And he's discovered that this, uh, he discovered early on that the mountain is actually full of the bones of dead children. And he wants to find out how those children got there. And he's actually being forced to do the same thing, to, to feed the mountain. The mountain wants children. And, and he wants to find out why and you know why the town's so cursed. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from this. I'm going to read a little bit from Oliver's journal, where he attempts to uh, find out exactly what's happening and why this is happening to him. So I'll just jump right in. March 14, 2006. I saw my father today. I tried being nice to him. I fed him his goddamn tomato soup, didn't I? Spooned it into his gap-toothed mouth and listened to every hideous slurping sound. It was like a drain clogged with shit, gurgling and spitting, and I never said a word, not once. He jutted out his chin when he'd finished, wanting me to wipe his face, but I put the brakes on the TLC at that point. I handed him a napkin, and he looked at me with sad eyes, so I told him that wiping his face was only one step removed from wiping his ass, that I'd put a bullet in his head before that happened, that I'd put a bullet in mine. I tried to be nice because I wanted to ask him about the town. I wondered if he knew anything about Jack Brown, the church fire, or the suicide pact in the woods. I took away his soup dish, wheeled him in front of the TV, and put on Days of Our Lives, sat through it with him. Then I flicked off the TV, angled his wheelchair toward me, and asked, what is this town hiding? I didn't expect to get much sense from a man who collects his boogers on a piece of five-fly chipboard he calls the Green Monster. He started to make a yug, yug, yug sound and his glass eye sagged in its socket as if whatever supported it had partially collapsed. He's only 63, my old man, but you'd think him 93. I guess he inhaled too much Agent Orange in Nam. Yug, yug, he said, and there was a long runner of spit dangling from his lower lip. I called him a fucking disgrace. He stopped and looked at me, sucked that spit right into his mouth with the same sound he'd made while eating the tomato soup, and then said with certain and chilling clarity, When you were three months old, I put a pillow over your face. I wish to God I'd kept it there. <laughs> the mist was brief but velvety red, and I grabbed my jacket from where I'd thrown it over the back of the armchair, bulled it into a pillow, and pressed it against his face. He fought as hard as he was able, flailing weakly with his arms, jerking his legs so frantically that his wheelchair started to roll across the floor, and I had to put my boot behind one wheel to keep it in place. I heard him trying to scream and watched the top of his bald head turn from freckled eggshell to, well, tomato red. It didn't take long for the fight to drain from him. His legs started to tremble. His left arm sagged like his glass eye. I took the jacket away at the last moment and he pulled a desperate rip of air into his lungs. He exhaled like a horse whinnying, spittle flying from his purple lips, boogers popping from his nostril. The green monster will have to do without those particular trophies, but there'll be more, I'm sure. His hands clasped the wheelchair's armrest and his good eye rolled every which way, as if registering the minutiae of a life he was still living. So, a fucking, a bitch. 
I was disgusted with him. Myself, too. I told him I hated him. His prosthetic eye had rolled back in his skull so that only the bottom of the painted iris could be seen, but his good eye zeroed on me. I've seen pictures of my father as a younger man, and we look alike, we really do. But I hope I never look like he did right then, an unloved doll, a wry portrait. He called me a hell-bound cunt. I called him a vile, worthless cocksucker, then put on the jacket I'd almost killed him with and left. So much for nice. June 9th, 2006. More gold on the internet. I found it by chance, panning through gigabytes of bullshit. My eyes trained to recognize the shape of the words, point, hollow, and pick them off the page no matter how fast I scrolled. But I found something else, a photograph. I zipped past it to begin with, but then my brain slammed on the brakes, and I scrolled back. The quality is not good. It's an old photograph, but I can see what I need to. The mouth of the cave, my cave. And in the foreground, a man standing with three terrified children. He has a creepy fishhook smile. Two of the children are clutching each other, but all three are crying. I can't write anymore for now. This, this photograph has thrown me out of fix. The man, he unnerves me. It's his face, his grin. Tomorrow I'll copy and paste it into the journal, see if I can find out more about him. Mr. Fishhook original me. June 14th, 2006. One of the little girls in the photograph is wearing a white dress and dark socks. She's also wearing a bracelet on her left wrist. I went to the mountain and looked for her, spent seven hours sifting among the bones. So many bodies crumbled when I touched them. Their clothes too, like wet paper. I searched the depths of the cavern, found damp culverts and recesses I had never seen before, filled with small bones. My throat was thick with dust. I inhaled and I had blisters on my fingertips from scrambling along the slick stone. I found her just when I was about to give up hope. Her ribcage had fallen inward. She had one sock on clogged with grime down around her ankle. The bracelet was looped over the fragile bones of her fingers, swollen with corrosion. But it was her. And I knew for certain that the photograph I had pulled from the internet had been taken moments before she was led into the darkness of Abraham's faith. I was wrong about her dress. It was yellow, not white. August 3rd, 2006. I went out with Sheriff Tansy again today, the first time in 18 months. It was actually okay. We started off talking about sports and work briefly. I know nothing about sports. He knows nothing about work. Then our conversation turned to common ground, Point Hollow. He was as forthcoming on the subject as I've ever known him to be. He told me flat out that certain incidents in the town's past had been kept from the outside world, that there were remarkably few such incidents, all things considered. There were no records, and the townspeople, those who remembered, held their silence. So you just forget it ever happened, I asked. Tansy winked. We're in this together, my friend. I wondered, without official records and with the town locked in silence, how much the sheriff actually knew, how much anybody knew, given that these incidents were swept under the rug a long time ago. I decided that I probably knew more than him and was almost certain he had no idea about the children in the mountain. I should point out, the Tansy added, puffing out his chest as if to accentuate the badge, that these few blights were long before my time. I haven't had to cover anything up, and God pray I'm never put in that position. So far, Oliver, my friend, I'm batting a thousand. Nothing has happened on my watch. And I thought, if only you knew. April 5th, 2007. I don't see much of Kip Sawyer these days. He's as fragile as the bones in the mountain. One hearty gust of wind, and he's apt to separate like a handful of confetti, which isn't surprising when you consider the town threw him a 100th birthday party three years ago, not knowing if it was actually his 100th birthday, but figuring it was ballpark close. <laughs> Poor old Kip is completely blind now. No more crosswords in the sun. He can't walk, has difficulty articulating, needs a hearing aid, and wears a nasal cannula plugged into an oxygen tank that he ca carries in a leatherette satchel, usually drooped over the push handles of his wheelchair. He's basically a heartbeat and a very old shell, and I wonder if his mind is as sharp as it used to be. I almost hope not for his sake. That must be like trying to fly in a cage. I see him occasionally, though. His helper will push him around town when the weather allows, and sometimes he'll sit on the corner of Pussy Willow Road, waving at passing cars. I've 
considered asking him about the town again. It's been 10 years since our discussion in Blueberry Bush Park, but have refrained. A man so advanced in life isn't likely to have a change of heart. Still, he was the first person I thought of asking when I found the photograph on the internet. Kip would have been alive when it was taken, not much older than the three terrified children, depending on when it was taken and how old Kip really is. He might recognize one or all of them. He might even recognize the man with the fishhook smile. What can you tell me about this picture, Kip? He might help me understand. He might help me put an end to it. Perhaps if Kip wasn't blind, I would have asked anyway, despite his frailty and stubbornness. I might have surprised him enough to get a reaction. It had to be worth trying, but I didn't see the point in showing him a photograph he couldn't see, so left it alone until today. I was at the doctor's office for my annual medical, Dr. Alex, not Dr. Rizika. It just isn't done to have your testes squeezed by one of the guys you play poker with. Everything checked out, blood pressure a tad on the high side, but put that down to white coat hypertension. Kip was in, his waiting, in the waiting room when I came through, sitting in his wheelchair while the helper talked to the medical secretary. I glanced at him, nothing more, kept walking, and all of a sudden my legs decided to go left instead of straight ahead. Two seconds later, I was sitting in the empty seat next to his wheelchair. Hello, Mr. Sawyer. It's, it's Oliver. Oliver Ray. His cloudy eyes flicked my way. Oh, he said. Or maybe, hello. I looked at his helper, who was deep in conversation with the secretary. I had some time before I was shooed away like the nuisance that I am. I'm holding a photograph, I said. The photograph was actually here in a folder on my desk, but he didn't need to know that. It's very old. Probably taken around the time Woodrow Wilson was in the White House and you were a young man a long time ago. Moan by him, he agreed and tried to smile. Maybe you can tell me something about it, I continued and leaned a little closer. It's a local photograph. I'll describe the scene and maybe you can. Mogul? Yeah, that's right, local. His blind eyes flicked away from me. I saw tiny water droplets in the cannula tubing tremble as he breathed. It was taken on Abraham's faith. I hesitated whether or not to tell him how I knew this and decided it didn't really matter. Old man Kip was knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door and would take whatever I said with him. I know this because I recognize the mouth of the cave. I've been there, Kip, many times. I've been inside. I've seen the bodies. His eyes drifted my way as blank as bullet holes. There's a man standing in front of the cave, late 20s, early 30s, I'd say. He has thick, dark hair, lopsided smile. There are children with him, two girls, a boy, age between, Mo, I, I know Mo. Age between four, eight years old, they're crying, Kip. They're terrified. No, 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 no. What happened? I whispered. My heartbeat was louder than my voice, drumming so hard I thought my nose was going to start bleeding. Why did he do it, Kip, and how did he make it stop? The old man shook his head. Tears trickled from his eyes, rolled as far as the cannula tubing, then ran across it like rain on a pipe. He mumbled something unintelligible and flapped his hand toward the exit in the gesture that was easier to discern. Go pound sound, boy. Leave me the hell alone. The, help, the helper came over at that point. She looked at me accusingly, and I offered her a fetching smile in return. Just saying hello, I explained, getting to my feet. I squeezed Kip's shoulder as he knuckled the tears from his face and then left. I whistled all the way to the door, but was clenched and burning inside. Kip Sawyer's no help to me. A heartbeat in a shell. Even his soul is in chains. He's taken his secrets to the grave. September 10th, 2007. Abraham's faith woke up today. He pulled me, screaming from my bed at 4 a.m. I pissed myself like a little kid. It had been silent for more than 10 years. The thunder booming in my head as, as I write this. It reminds me how small I am. September 12th, 2007. I don't know his name yet. I'll watch the news later and find out. I grabbed him from a playground in Kent, Connecticut. He struggled all the way, and now, now I have to sleep. I look in the mirror and see an extremely tired man. Update, Felix Brodsky, nine years old. I look in the mirror and see a monster. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So yeah, that, that, 
That book is all about a mountain that eats children. So, you know, family reading, sure. Um, I'm now going to read just a little bit from my to-be-published novel from um, uh, Thomas Dunn Books, um, imprint of uh, uh, St. Martin's Press, Macmillan. Um, very, very happy about, uh, about this book. Um, my apologies in advance to Nick Kaufman, who's heard me read this before. Sorry, Nick. <laughs> um, and very brief. It's, this, is a, this is a book that's about memory, how arbitrary and uh, fragile memory can be. And it's about a guy, his name's Harvey, and he's searching for his girlfriend. Uh, the thing is, he can't remember anything about her. She zapped the memories of, of her from his mind. It's one of her, one of her powers. And um, he still loves her, though. So it's his search for a girl he loves but can't remember. And when he was, uh, when he was younger, he, he wrote a, a journal. He called it his Book of Moments. And he was collecting moments, memories, really. And he wrote these memories in the second person because he felt that that way he could connect more to the memory. He wasn't connecting to the emotion. He was connected to the memory. And he says it was like being apprised by like a wiser, older version of himself. So I'm going to read one of those memories for you now, or one of those moments. Um, and this is when... Uh, when Harvey actually meets, when Harvey meets Sally, which is probably what I should have called the book. <laughs> Moment, baby blue Schwinn. The tone is going to be very different, by the way. There's no dead children in this, I promise. Moment, baby blue Schwinn. Cadillac Jacks is on the corner of Columbus and Maine, a shimmering diner that would show up on Google Earth like a uranium spill. It has an over-the-top 50s vibe that you adore, waitresses wearing poodle skirts and bobby socks swirling between tables. The Wurlitzer is just for show, but the music being pumped through the speakers is pure rock and roll. Danny and the Juniors, Dion and the Belmonts, Bill Haley and his Comets. It's impossible to sit down to your Blueberry Hill pancakes and not feel like you've walked onto the set of Happy Days. Used to go there with mom every Sunday morning. She'd order the Jimmy Durante fruit cup and the lemon tea. You'd mostly go with the pancakes, but sometimes the Brando omelet, all that gooey American cheese, was just too tempting to resist. Mom knew the words to all those rock and roll classics, and she'd sing along while you ate. Then she'd make a huge fruity grin out of her orange peel and come in for a kiss. Writing this down won't help you remember everything. Time steals as well as it heals. But never forget how much you loved your mom and how much she loved you. You dined there every now and then after mom died, but it wasn't the same. It felt lonely, even with the bouncy bubblegum vibe. So you found a new breakfast joint at the other end of town, Marzipan's Kitchen, a different dining experience, to say the least. Where Cadillac Jacks has neon and polished chrome, Marzipan's has faux wood paneling and checkered tablecloths. There are pictures on one wall of spooky dudes from the Civil War era, and another wall is decorated floor to ceiling with beanie babies, each nailed into place through their little heart tags. <laughs> it has quirk, like Marzipan herself, a 60-something widow with smurf blue hair and coprolalia. Why the whole week? Fuck Jesus! Fucking whore! Fuck! She'll ask, and you'll coolly reply that the whole weed is preferable. Her profane outbursts, a somewhat rare symptom of Tourette's, ensure the characterful little restaurant is always busy. People love to be entertained. You'd never have set foot in Marzipan's kitchen if Mum hadn't died and you'd continued breakfast in the Cadillac Jacks. Mum's death came with many silver linings, which shouldn't surprise you at all, given her glimmering and selfless nature. The quirk of Marzipan's kitchen is one. Sally is another. She's the new waitress. Yin-yang earrings, beads in her hair, an adorable belly accentuated in the front of her t-shirt, the female form at her loveliest. The first thing she says to you, utterly unwaitress-like, is, you look good with long hair. You have perfect face shape, beautiful cheekbones. Also, we're out of whole grain bagels. Read the bagels, you say with the slightest of smiles. Don't sweat it, I was considering an English muffin. Read the hair? My eyelashes are too long. I'd look like a Las Vegas lion tamer. Maybe dreadlock, she ventures. It's a consideration, you say. One other thing about Marzipan's kitchen, real sweet. For those dining alone, Marzipan will often bring out a mannequin and sit it across the table from them. <laughs> Conversation is encouraged, and sometimes, if Marzipan is in a good mood, the mannequin will foot the bill. 
It's quite common to see diners getting into the zany spirit of things, discussing a cornucopia of topics with their fiberglass friends. Nobody blinks an eye either. Mazipans is liberating like that, good for the soul as well as the belly. Is this your girlfriend? Sally asks. Your mannequin has cracked blue eyes and sultry lips. She wears a paisley headscarf and has two left hands. <laughs> it's my sister, you say. We were uh, just discussing Britain's appointment of the first female poet laureate. I don't have a girlfriend. Sally slides into the booth, bumping your mannequin across the seat. She tilts stiffly, head resting against the wall. I listened to you play yesterday at Green River Park. Color has bloomed in Sally's cheeks, red as the checks in the tablecloth. You were playing to the birds. I wanted to hug you. Sometimes they sing along, you say. And there's a quaver to your voice. Your heart is tripping. It's better than money. I'm new in town, Sally says. She licks her lips. I, I don't know many people. Do you know what you're having? I've lived here all my life, you reply. I, I don't know many people either. I'll take the American cheese omelet. Did I mention the bagel situation? You want to kiss her right there, right then. You eat at Marzipan's kitchen more frequently, three, four times a week, until you finally pluck up the courage to ask Sally on a date. Even then, you can't really do it. You say, I don't have a car, in the most arbitrary manner. <laughs> but she knows what you're trying to say, and she says, that's okay, I have a bicycle. And you quaver, where should we go? And she says, as far as I can pedal. That evening, she screeches to a halt outside your apartment on a baby blue Schwinn, bubbly wine and a punnet of strawberries in the basket. You climb on behind her with your guitar strapped to your back, and she pedals you to Buttermilk Falls. You drink the wine and get giggly. You eat the strawberries and get sticky. Pretend I'm a bird, she says. You play, she sings. The waterfall turns from white to pink in the setting sun. I have something for you, she says. Shh, don't tell Marzipan. And she takes from the pocket of her skirt a long chestnut-colored wig. It belonged to your sister. Try it on. <laughs> you smile and tug the wig onto your head. Sally helps straighten it, her face alive and as full of color as the waterfall. She brushes errant strands from your face, tucks them behind your ears. I was right, she says. Lion tamer, you say. You're beautiful she says. Her lips glisten, moist with strawberry juice and wine, and how you want to kiss it all away. Instead, you run a hand through your chestnut hair, pick up your guitar, and play Van Morrison, someone like you. The birds settle around you. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely says Stephen King here, by the way. <laughs> Dope. Thank you, Rio. Um, so we're going to take like a 10 to 15 minute break. And uh, Word Bookstore is here. I see you in the back. Yay. So what books do you have? Uh, knife Fight and Point Hollow. Knife Fight and Point Hollow. So uh, go in the back, get the author's books. We'll be back in 15 minutes and buy drinks. And we'll be back with, with David Nichol in about 15. What's up? Okay, folks, we're ready to get started. We have our next reader up. Okay. Good evening, everybody. I am David Mercurio Rivera, not acclaimed editor Ellen Datlow, in case, in case you're confused. Ellen is currently in Florida at ICFA, but uh, I want to thank her and my partner in crime, Matt, for allowing me to uh, uh, come here tonight to introduce our next reader, who is, uh, oh, by the way, before we get started, uh, um, I want to encourage everybody to go back and, and get uh, the books that are available for sale and to have them come up and have our readers autograph them for you after we're done. And uh, of course, to continue drinking up and supporting the bar. Um, so with that, I want to introduce our, our second reader tonight, who is uh, David Nichol. David Nichol is an author and journalist who lives and works in Toronto, Canada. His stories have appeared on Tord.com in various years' best anthologies, and in two collections, uh, Monstrous Affections and Knife Fight and Other Struggles. 
He is the author of the novels Utopia, a novel of terrible optimism, Rasputin's Bastards, The Geisters, and with Carl Schroeder, The Klaus Effect. He and his wife, author Madeline Ashby, co-edited an anthology of James Bond stories. License expired, the unauthorized James Bond. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not available here in the United States, Sorry, but <laughs> because of copyright issues. <laughs> No. Yes, we have to, no. find, have to find a way to smuggle those books over the border. I don't want to know about it. Okay. <laughs> he, is, he is the past winner of the Aurora, Bram Stoker, and Black Quill Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, David Nichols. <laughs> So uh, first off, thank you, Matt and David and Ellen, for ha for having me here to New York. Um, I haven't been here for a very long time. Um, I I have only actually been here for uh, very very nice and glamorous things, and it looks as though uh, this evening is no exception. What a what a what a wonderful crowd um, you, you 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 cats are. Um, so I, I I hear you're having an election. Uh, well, not an election. It's a we in Canada don't understand how you do this. <laughs> you um, you get some 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 lunatic who uh, who who starts talking about impossible things to do, and um, and before you know it, he's almost the president. Actually, we do understand in Toronto. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am as as the as the as, uh, as as David said, a journalist, and I my my job has been to cover Toronto city politics. Which means that I have an intimate understanding of uh, the problem that you guys are facing, um, which is to say, you are you are going to elect Rob Ford as president of the United States. It appears. Um, well, you might. Uh, your primary is coming up. I hope that uh, that New York will will have a reasonably sensible approach to this. Uh, so uh, I, I was I, w I was covering Rob Ford. We we didn't think he'd win either. Um, and he did. Um, as you, if, if for those of you who don't know, Rob Ford's crazy, cra cra crazy big Chris Farley uh, has a drug problem, um, and uh, and and was, was talking about stopping the gravy train. So in the middle of this um, of this term that I was covering it, I could not contain myself anymore. Normally I, I write horror stories and, 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 and weird stories and whatnot, but uh, I had to write something about Rob Ford, but I couldn't because I was a journalist and you can't just write a Rob Ford fanfic story. So I wrote this story, uh, Knife Fight, which I'm going to read to you. And I think we can probably, I, I, I practice it on the plane, um, and I think we can probably fit it into the, the, the allotted schedule. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the official line, but we are, we are among friends here. The official, the official line that I give with my employers, it's not about Rob Ford at all. So let's just maintain that fiction. <laughs> Story is called Knife Fight. It's the title story of my of my collection. That's that's there at the back. Uh, there are, looks like I'm I'm guessing about eight or nine. Uh, there are seven copies of it. So um, do with that what you will. <laughs> Knife Fight, by David Nichol. Not many outside the confines of the political wing at City Hall would guess it, but our new mayor is an expert with a knife. <laughs> he has been practicing since he was a boy, from the day he first laid eyes on the 11-inch bowie knife jammed hill deep into a tree stump in the family's ancestral woodlot and withdrew it, claiming it as his own then and forever. The concrete of his father's basement workshop floor is still flecked with the tiny reddish-brown dots a Jackson Pollock record of the young mayor's apprenticeship. Those nights when he was too slow or worse, too quick. Those days are long past, and now the mayor is neither. He is merely bold. He is an expert. Since the hour of his swearing in, the mayor has kept the knife in his desk drawer next to his chain of office, wrapped in an oilcloth tied with thin leather straps. There it slumbers six nights in a week. The seventh, Thursday. <laughs> the mayor carefully unwraps it, holds it to the fading afternoon light to see that its edge remains keen and in the company of his older cousin, the one who oversees road repairs in the West District, the mayor steps into the elevator that takes him straight to the parking garage, and so it begins. In the beginning, the waiting crowd had been small indeed, comprised of a handful of senior staff and five city councillors, each hoping to become the mayor's deputy and thereby enjoy the, the attendant perquisites and honors. 
They had been there since 3 p.m., stripped to the waist and greased with goose fat, not daring to speak, barely breathing. The mayor's cousin had reviewed the rules with each of them, which he called Robert's Rules of Knife Fight. <laughs> it is said that the city clerk, leaning against the planning commissioner's SUV, snickered at the procedure and that this, not political differences, was the reason for her dismissal at the next meeting of council. The mayor's cousins explained the rules then, as he has it each subsequent Thursday. One, there are only ever two combatants in a knife fight, and each combatant is allowed a knife. <laughs> two, the knives are to be provided by the combatants in a keen, clean condition free of rust. Other objects, scissors, hammers, axes, surgical instruments, shall not be considered knives for the purposes of the knife fight. Three, combatants shall arrive stripped to the waist and well lubricated so as to keep the knife fight from becoming a wrestling match, which is unseemly. Four, goose fat is considered an acceptable lubricant for the purposes of a knife fight. Five, victory in the knife fight is usually decided by the drawing of first blood. Six, combatants shall, appoint, shall avoid their opponent's faces, hands, and throats, confining their strikes to parts of the body usually, usually covered by appropriate business attire. <laughs> Seven, in the event that both combatants draw blood from one another in the same instant, the knife, knife fight shall be called, considered a draw and entered in the records as such. And finally, eight, to the victor go the spoils. The knife fight remained a well-kept secret for many months. It is true, we wondered at the selection of the new deputy mayor, a stocky, dull-witted rookie councillor from the slaughterhouse district, who was unable to finish the sentence without uttering a profanity and crumpled his briefing notes without even reading them. And more than once, we had seen a blossom of red erupt on the white blouses of the new budget chief, the new budget chief ward of the committee meetings regarding capital allocations for the coming fiscal year and we had wondered at the propensity of the new chair of the Transit Commission to press his fist into his mouth and shut his eyes during breaks and meetings as though holding back tears at some awful recollection. But who cared about such things in a larger scheme? Not us, not at first. The first year of the mayor's first term was successful by any account. The budget chief not only balanced the books but was able to deliver a modest property tax reduction for the elderly and lay down plans for a swimming pool and target range, creating the first two-thirds of a much-needed triathlete program in the underprivileged slums lining the West Riverbank. Our editors wrote supportive editorials as the deputy mayor announced that the Association of Suburban Golf Courses would open up in the winter months for the final third. The new light rail line servicing the old blue-collar municipality of Smelt received all the funding it needed from a new federal grant program announced, the, announced the, by the Transit Commission Chair in tremulous tones. So we filled our newspapers and broadcasts and blogs with triumphant stories of the mayor's success. We remained silent on the price that his council seemed to be paying for that success. Perhaps we intuited the truth. Getting too close to the story might mean crawling too close to, the to an edge, to a knife edge. Tabloid reporter Stan Bollockser now, he broke the story. No one should have been surprised, yet we all were. For few outside the jungles of El Salvador knew it at the time, but Stan was also an expert with a knife. <laughs> The carbon steel butterfly knife Stan keeps in the pocket of his jeans has been with him nearly as long as the mayor has possessed his bowie knife. But Stan was a grown man when he first wielded his blade. When, he asked, when we asked him later why he kept it so close, he would only say that it had saved his life enough times that he owed it a good home. No doubt, Stan was an old hand with sound instincts, He'd come to City Hall during the election and had watched our mayor from the start of the campaign. In the newsroom, he'd predicted that the mayor would prevail even when the polls placed him a distant fourth. Stan recognized something in the man's eye and the way he handled metaphor in his speech and the way that he moved. He recognized a predator. 
and he recognized prey. So Stan went to work on the mayor, the way a reporter does. He started asking around with his police contacts and located an arrest report from 20 years earlier, when the candidate, then just a lad, was caught knocking over tombstones in the nearby town of Remington. The story made the front page and sent the, future's mayor, the future mayor's campaign into a flurry of damage control that proved completely unnecessary. For who among us has not, in the naivete of youth, mocked death with a well-placed boot and a war cry? Stan pressed on. The mayor was but a lowly school trustee prior to his ascendancy. Stan dug up the mayor's voting record and discovered he had voted to ban several well-regarded texts from the public school libraries, and he had voted for his own salary increase, not once, but three times. Stan discovered a formal complaint alleging the, that the mayor had arrived inebriated and used salty language during the parent-teacher association meeting to discuss refurbishment of play, playground equipment. None of it stuck. With each article, the mayor's public approval rose. The campaign stopped even responding to Stan's reportage. And the week before the election, the campaign manager sent Stan a thank you note on gilt-edged embossed stationery that seemed very expensive in gratitude for all his support. So Stan wrote another story based on the note, questioning whether the mayor had, was operating within campaign spending guidelines, given the opulence of the gesture. Three days later, the mayor was, was elected. Thus did Stan's permanent assignment to the press gallery at City Hall become an inevitability. We liked Stan very much from the start. He was soft-spoken in scrums, but attentive. When he, asked a, when he did ask a question, it would be the question that pierced the heart of the matter. When he filed his story, it would be the one that, if we were all to be honest, best described the nuance of the issue at hand. When he watched something before too long, he saw what it was about. So it was that on the Tuesday after the announcement of the new light rail line to smelt, he requested a personal one-on-one -on -one interview with the mayor. No one thought he'd receive it. Our mayor, as everyone well knows by now, is not a friend of the media. He prefers to speak to constituents directly over the public address system on the subway or via sky-written aphorisms or in person descending upon the backyard barbecues, garage sales, and weddings of the leading citizens for impromptu moments of bonhomie. He does not grant many interviews. But he made an exception for Stan. The interview was scheduled for 12.05 and expected to last 15 minutes. The subject was to be a retrospective of the mayor's first hundred days in office. The mayor's office was suspicious, for they had a sense that Stan was up to something. So the mayor didn't face Stan alone. His second floor office was crowded with his press secretary, his deputy mayor, and his cousin in the transportation department who had taken a lunch break from road repair to see what Stan Bollockser truly wanted. Stan was not dissuaded. He smiled, sat down across the desk from the mayor, and reached into his pocket as if to produce a digital voice recorder. But there was no recorder. This can be off the record, he said, as he flipped open his butterfly knife, turned it so it gleamed in the noonday light, and with a sudden savage plunge, drove it point deep into the mahogany top of the mayor's desk. <laughs> now Tuesday comes but two days before Thursday, and there was much to be done. The mayor's chief of staff and communications director tried to talk the mayor out of it, but he was determined. So they set about devising political strategies, anticipating the worst possible outcomes. The mayor's cousin attempted to arrange to have coffee with Stan and see if he might be dissuaded, but Stan refused to even take his calls. Stan, meanwhile, whispered to those few of us he'd come to trust about the thing he had begun. He spent time in his office, honing his blade with a wet, wetted stone and recalling again and again the, the night in, El Sal in San Salvador, August, hot as a sauna, smelling strangely of cinnamon when the one-eyed man from the jungle had appeared at his room and tried to kill him. One thing he did not do was inform his editor. Neither did any of us. Our mayor is a man of chiseled granite. This is not apparent when he appears in public, bedecked in his checkered blazers and generously cut trousers, the novelty ties that light up with strategically placed LEDs. Were his constituents to see him shirtless, the goose fat sliding down his torso in thick rivulets, highlighting tendons and veins with ropey and ropey hard-won scars, they would not recognize him. And worse, 
they would no longer recognize themselves. They might recoil as we did, seeing him step off the elevator in the parking garage reserved for city councilors and senior staff, watching him meet each of our eyes in turn with his hard and fearsome stare. The mayor's cousin allowed three of us to accompany Stan on the condition that we left all recording devices, including pens and notepads in a small organic recycling bin left over from the previous administration. The mayor was accompanied by his cousin and his deputy mayor and his budget chief. The interim city clerk sat in the passenger seat of a Citroën, an ancient portable typewriter in his lap, a, stack, a stack of carbon paper by his side. The interim clerk squinted at Stan as he came out from the stairwell and in, in his lap, the typewriter keys began to clack out a description. Stan bollocks or glistened. He was stripped naked to the waist, polished with a thick layer of goose fat, which stained the belt line of his old cut-off jeans. His eyes were wide and seemed a little crazed, and the interim clerk noted for the record that Stan might be under the influence of a performing-enhancing stimulant. This was, this was true in a way. He had downed a room-temperature extra-large cup of Colombian coffee from the commissary just prior to coming downstairs. The butterfly knife rested closed in his left hand as he walked out past the work committee chairman's Harley Davidson and faced the mayor. The rules were read then, the mayor's cousin declaiming them in a slow drawl that was almost a song. When he finished, to the victor go the spoils. The deputy mayor knelt beside his Subaru, lifted the mayor's knife, and put it in the mayor's extended hand. Stan made a whiplash motion with his wrist, and the blade of the butterfly knife, less than a quarter the length of the bowie knife, flashed silver in the pallid light of the garage. We all withdrew to a more respectful distance, for the knife fight between Stan Bollocker and the mayor was on and nobody wanted to be caught in the middle of it. There are rules for the knife fight, and those are written down. But there are also customs. The mayor knows them instinctively, for many are his own, but most of his opponents do not. We suspect that inwardly the mayor is saddened by these vulgar bumpkins who enter combat with thin-lipped, badly-feigned rage and leap directly for the mayor's midsection to end things at once with a slash to the nipple or a stab to the collarbone. The mayor finishes these opponents quickly. Stan Bollocker was not one of those. Eyes never leaving the mayor's, Stan drew a long, slow circle in the air using the point of his knife, and again, marginally faster, and so on until he was looking through a circular blur of steel and arm, spinning as fast as the propeller on a biplane. Did we hear the crick crack of a shoulder dislocating, the creak of sinew bending? Could any of us mark the precise instant that the knife shifted from, hand, from Stan's whirling left hand to his right? Did any of us truly see admiration, respect, and a, perhaps a soupçon of fear cross the mayor's implacable brow? No, not truly. But we did hear the mayor emit a long, low growl, the only appropriate response to such a fundamental challenge, an alpha male warning cry that came from the depths of our ancestry. The mayor bent down, pulled a dollop of goose fat from the fold beneath his arm, and <laughs> dipped it into the dust of the garage floor. As he stood, he smeared the filthy grease in long black lines under his eyes and over each brow, and then at the edge of his jaw, weapon clutched at his hand, he raised both arms over his head like wings, the tip of his, of his knife scoring the bottom of the blood-red exit sign. The effect was fearsome. No one would leave without going through him. Stan flexed his arm and spun the butterfly knife, handle clicking open and close, and bent his neck first to the left and then to the right. The mayor drew his breath over his teeth in a serpentine hiss. The butterfly knife solidified in Stan's fist. The mayor bellowed, and the knife swung in a crescent of steel that shimmered in the fluorescent afternoon. It might have slashed Stan's left pectoral in two, but his own blade met the mayor's as Stan ducked low and drove his opposite shoulder into the mayor's stomach. Stan let out a cry and drew his blade down in a slice that might, on another day, have relieved the mayor of a kidney. The mayor skipped aside instead, then retreated and swung his free arm contraclockwise to create a deadly momentum. The knife plunged and Stan shifted and the blade squealed across the windshield of the mayor's truck as Stan whirled in a failed attempt to slice a piece from the mayor's shoulder. 
It was too much. Stan shifting and whirling, and the mayor caught Stan with his free arm, hard in the chest, and Stan doubled over. The butterfly knife would have been airborne had Stan not hooked his pinky through the handle. The mayor might have had it then. He brought his own knife about, holding it, holding it an inch above Stan's shoulder. It hovered there as Stan wheezed and then withdrew. The mayor stepped back, knife at his side, fixing Stan with an expression that might have been a grin of triumph or simply a mask of exhaustion. The parking garage fell silent, but for the increasingly frenzied clacking of the typewriter keys from the Citroen's front seat. By degrees, Stan Bollocker stood. The mayor raised his knife and pointed it at Stan like a deadly forefinger. Next week, same time, he said, same place. <laughs> it was rumored that one of us, a new reporter with something to prove, filed a news bit about the battle. But her piece never saw print nor appeared on the internet. Before a week had run out, she had been transferred to the radio room where, it was said, she spent her nights listening to the police scanner for word of fires and crimes and other nocturnal catastrophes. The rest of us kept the pact, and the mayor kept, the, kept to a busy public schedule. Stan joined us in following him. How could he do otherwise? Following the mayor through the wards of his city was Stan's job as much as it was any of ours. When time came for the mayor to declaim, Stan Bollocks' microphone had its place in front of the podium. Stan was a professional. If his eyes ever met the mayor's through the scrum, and if he ever felt the mayor taking his measure, well, he didn't let it show. Nor did the mayor, at least not in those moments. But we wondered. Did the mayor's frenetic activity that week shielding him in the midst of the children of the Smelt Community Center, Pools, Summer Fun Day Camp, or the Cannery District Seniors Snooker Club indicate that his nerve was slipping, or perhaps he was using the business of, and ceremony of his office as a kind of extended display, a demonstration that he, and not this cocksure pretender, was the leader of the tribe. But if he was shaken, we wondered, why hadn't he simply ended the knife fight the previous Thursday? taken his slice from Stan Bollocks' greasy shoulder and called victory. On the following Thursday morning, several of us came late to work. We'd been called from our beds by frantic city editors to join the night team in covering an atrocity unfolding in the food court at the Old Town Abattoir Mall. <laughs> it was a terrible crime, a tragedy, but so immense that in those early hours, days really, no one could reliably determine precisely what had happened. Early reports indicated a hail of gunfire erupting from the rendering gallery, perhaps, but injuries did not bear this out, and the theory did not explain the smashed masonry at the end of the fountain, or the size of the holes in the ductwork. Although many had been knocked unconscious in the event, no one was treated for bullet wounds. Descriptions of the perpetrators were similarly vague and contradictory, giant men, possibly of African descent, faces covered in cheap fabric, heads shaven, teeth emerging like tusks from their jaws. The abattoir atrocity, as our editors dubbed it, was an impossible story to tell. It would not make sense of itself. Those of us called upon to help wrestle it into a narrative came in late, exhausted and dispirited. The only thing that kept us going was the resumption of the struggle between the mayor and Stan Bollixer. Although we knew we could never tell it, that was a story that at least we could understand. The knives flashed ribbons of steel through the air as the combatants danced across the concrete floors of the garage where it was not smeared with long slides of goose fat and back hair. A fluorescent tube sent a snowfall of shattered glass as the bowie knife cut through it. The director of community services spent the second part of the fight huddled behind a Subaru applying pressure to an accidental slash across his arm from a fine honed blade of the butterfly knife. Although it was warm in the parking garage, the city clerk rolled up the windows of his Citroen and kept low as he clacked away on the minutes of the second installment of the knife fight. This one lasted longer than the first. The mayor's cousin called it at 27 minutes, 53 seconds, standing over the mayor, collapsed on his back, while Stan, similarly exhausted, propped himself against a cement pillar. The two may have been invulnerable that afternoon to mere steel, but middle age and the hot, dry, carbon monoxide-rich air of the VIP parking garage were another matter. 
Why don't you call it a draw? Cried the middle, cried the director of community services, blood staining his fingers and necktie where he held it against his arm. Haven't you proved enough? The mayor drew a wheezing breath and fixed narrow eyes on the bureaucrat who looked away. The mayor turned back to Stan, who was coming out the other side of a long coughing fit. These are the end times, the mayor said, and sat still a moment before gathering himself up and quitting the ring. The words were prophetic. The following week's monthly council meeting had not, was attended by not only the mayor and his, all his councillors, but also the senior staff and their assistants, all of us, and delegations from wards across the city. This meeting had been scheduled to go long. Merchants from, Ab from Abattoir Mall had come with a petition demanding greater police presence and the installation of video cameras. There was to be a discussion of the cost overrun on the light rail line and the smelt, and a committee of residents were asking for additional stops to better service the rehabilitation hospital. The city's poet laureate had composed three new stanzas on the epic retelling of our amalgamation 15 years ago, and there was to be a presentation no later than 3 p.m. These things, combined with several dozen routine items, ought to have added up to a sometimes vigorous but relatively straightforward session, finishing no later than 7. Meetings under the mayor were famous for running with brutal efficiency. It was not B. The merchants were joined by a local civil liberties group shouting down the abattoir mall manager's deputation, requiring the services of the city hall security squad in a recess to clear the chambers and restore calm. The debate continued for three solid hours after that, the matter becoming so confused with amendments that, on the clerk's advice, council finally deferred the, the item until the Christmas session. Through all of this, the denizens of Smelt hovered at the back, stoking their grievances one upon the, the other until the, their matter came up. And as a group, they demanded that the light rail line be ripped out altogether and the remaining funds be reallocated for the restoration of the Smelt Arms Bijou, a cinema that had been derelict since the war, but held many fond memories for the elder smelters. Despite vigorous lobbying by the mayor's staff, council sided with the deputants and narrowly voted to kill the rail plan. The poet laureate, meantime, had grown bored early in the meeting, as, and as poet, poet laureates do, comforted himself with the contents of his hip flask throughout the afternoon. When his time came, he drunk himself into sufficient belligerence to substitute an obscene limerick in place of his more sublime stanzas. While some of us might have commented that the limerick was an improvement overall, the mayor obviously did not agree. The city is swirling the toilet, he was heard to mutter, unaware momentarily that his microphone was still on. Third time, nearly finished it. Mayor and reporter went at one another savagely from the outset, crashing together and wrestling each other's knife arm with their free hand. The mayor smashed his forehead into Stan's twice, and Stan at a point managed to loop his arm between the mayor's legs and so hoist him above his head, slamming the city's chief magistrate hard onto the hood of a mid-sized sedan. Had this, not, had this been a wrestling match and not a knife fight, Stan would have won it. The savagery grew. The parking garage onlookers gasped as one, as one when the mayor missed slashing Stan's throat by scant inches, and again seconds later as the tip of Stan's blade hovered an instant over the mayor's right eyeball. In the third round, it seemed, the knife fight had Stan transformed into a killing fight. Yet for the third time, not a, blood of, not, not a drop of blood was shed. On Friday morning, the Doucette Greeting Card Company held a press conference at which their president, Wallace Doucette, announced that they would be ceasing production by November. By year's end, they planned to have moved all remaining operations south of the border, where a more favorable tax regime combined with a more eager labor market and a city more attractive to executives and their families would ensure the company's survival. The workers received their layoff notices at the beginning of the morning shift. The mayor spoke to reporters afterwards attempting to downplay the impact of Doucette's departure and deflect the suggestion that our city was no place an executive would want to raise a family. But he could only carry it so far. The Doucette family was the third largest employer in the city, and as a boy, the mayor had played lacrosse with Wallace. The patrol was both civic and personal. On the weekend, it rained. The rain started early Saturday, coming down in thick gray sheets reminiscent of flying knives and did not relent until early Sunday. Creeks overflowed, storm sewers clogged, and unlucky householders found their basements filling with sludge as the sewer system overflowed. Three footbridges washed away in parks, and a great sinkhole opened at the intersection to the east of the downtown. 
all but devouring one of the city's two dozen eco new eco-friendly buses. The mayor did not immediately respond to calls from our weekend reporters. How could he? He had other things with which to occupy himself. He had to become better. On Monday evening, Stan joined us for drinks after deadline. The storm had given way to awful humidity, and so we gathered in the pier district in the back room of a, of a Czech pub, well known to those of our profession. As he had been since the fights began, Stan was quiet. Fortunately, drawing information from a quiet man is a hallmark of our profession. So we speculated, making note of the fact that the mayor's fortunes seemed to have turned over, turned over the course of the long, stalemated battle between himself and Stan. We suppose that the stalemate may simply have sapped the mayor's confidence, although that we, as we thought about it, that didn't explain the rainstorm or the drunken limericks or the perversity of the men and women of smelt on matters of public transit. Stan smiled at that and shook his head and concentrated on the shape of the foam that took atop, uh, atop of his ale. And so we wondered, how was it that there wasn't any blood in the fights? How was it that Stan Bollockser and the mayor, both experts with the blade, could not land so much as a nick as they battled so energetically? The blades had cut cars, light fixtures, even a senior bureaucrat. <laughs> what unknown agent so thickened the hides of the mayor and of Stan Bollockser? Would this battle of titans ever end? To the victor went the spoils, said the rules. What if there was no victor? And Stan shrugged and smiled and bound his beer in a single long swallow. Good question, he said. We persisted. What if there was no victor? What if, it's, what if it stopped, you mean, said Stan. He slid his glass across the bar and signaled for the check. What if a long fight that has shaped the mayor, shaped the city, or just came to an end? Yes, we said. What if no one took the spoils? Well, he said, grinning a little, guess this city wouldn't go to anyone. Guess it'd be on its own. Guess it might be free. The budget committee began deliberations three weeks later. This time it did not go smoothly. The city's treasurer had underestimated revenues, putting the city tens of millions of dollars in the red for the coming year. Flooding from the rainstorms had created an emergency liability that the city would have to cover through tax revenues, and the collapse of the greeting card sector meant a precipitous drop in assessments. While no one spoke the words aloud, several of us found well-placed sources who hinted that the city could be on the verge of bankruptcy by Christmas. Meanwhile, city council members and senior bureaucrats quietly found other places to park their vehicles in the VIP parking lot, at least on Thursdays. For who, really, wants to leave their cars unattended on a battlefield? Guided by the same principle, the audiences grew smaller each Thursday, some nursing wounds from errant slashings, others sensibly retreating to their offices or their homes, while the mayor fought his nemesis to a standstill week after week after week. Some of us stopped attending as well. Partly with self-preservation, but also something more fundamental, work. Termites rose up from the earth in the fashionable Palm District, devouring the stout oak-trimmed homes of our leading citizens. The garbage workers went on strike just before Halloween, and the bus drivers joined them in solidarity a week later. Three more atrocities followed the abattoir atrocity in quick succession, each incident delivering more mayhem and making less sense than the last, causing our editors to deem this the year of the atrocity. On Thursday before Christmas, none of us attended. How could we? The city was bankrupt, its homes crumbling to sawdust, <coughs> the bus, busway silent but for swirling snow, and garbage piled up in mountains outside the shooting range by the river. We had our hands full. And then it was Christmas. City Hall was not entirely empty, but near to it. Only a few of us came in to check on the place. Janitors and security guards patrolled the halls, and a handful of councillors wandered in the political ring. But there were not, so, not many of those, most huddled in their homes, dreading the new year when, almost assuredly, the city would not be able to make its payroll. Calls, went to the, calls to the mayor's office went unanswered. Stan Bollocks' office was dark, the door locked. In the quiet of the Yule, we began to wonder, had there been a final battle? Had the mayor prevailed? Had Stan? Had one or the other died? Had they slain one another? We had to go see. What do you mean? The garage. We had to go see. It's locked up. We had to go see. The conversation went in circles like that. 
and might have gone on forever had not the budget chief happened by. Unlike the mayor, she was a great friend of the media and sought us out as often as she could. After handing out her annual stash of candy canes, she asked us if we would join her on a tour of the VIP parking garage. Her pass card, so far as she knew, still worked. The garage was empty but for an old convertible covered in canvas cloth, rumored to belong to the works committee chair. The floor had been swept. There was not so much as a smudge of goose fat on the ground or along the walls. It was as though the knife fight had never happened here. We asked the budget chief if she had seen the mayor recently. She said that she had not, but that wasn't unusual. He seems preoccupied, said the budget chief, and who can blame him? Well, what do you mean? The budget chief shrugged as we walked the wide circle of the garage. It's tough times. You guys were all calling him on it. He couldn't miss it. And that's, and that's got to weigh heavy on him. I mean, the mayor's supposed to keep a handle on things. He let go. And no one, to no one, we realized, went the spoils. We stood near to one another in the cold, empty parking garage, considering the implications of that. How had Stan Bollocker put it? We would be on our own. We would be free. One of us wondered aloud if the budget chief thought the mayor's time might have come, if she might have thought that she, the budget chief, might not be able to do a better job of it. But the budget chief didn't answer. She stopped looking down at the base of she stopped looking down at the base of one of the pillars, where a glint of steel emerged below a hilt bound in old leather. The blade had been driven into the concrete, tiny cracks like capillaries branching off from it. Will you look at that, she said, and wrapped her fingers around the hilt. That's it. Thank you very much for having having Rio and I from down from Canada. We Thanks, David. That, that was amazing. You know, I want to I want to vote for Rob Ford for some no, reason. No, 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 no. no. Okay. If nothing else. Thanks everybody for joining us this month. Come back next month for Elizabeth Bear and Scott Lynch. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.